It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to the GIC call, or better known as Grounded in Commerce. It is Tuesday, July 21st, 2015. Grounded in Commerce group objective to bringing sense to the seemingly senseless world of commerce. People tend to get lost in administrative pursuits, processes, and being applicable to the private and public merits. We offer to our listeners a very exposure to educational materials to gain and understanding of one's pursuits. This material here today is not to be misconstrued as being legal or financial advice. We strongly suggest if you need legal or financial advice, are you seeking a licensed attorney or financial planner or both? This material is for entertainment purposes only, and I'd like to turn the mic over to Nancy. So is Nancy there? Good evening. Hope everyone is having a uh, great day. It is another day without rain on the Oregon coast, and it's getting pretty bleak around here. So, not sure what the, uh, you know, what what weather you have in your neck of the woods, but um, certainly it's beautiful, sunny, and and um, and weird. Let's <laughs> just say that. So, <clears throat> tonight's topic of conversation is on a few things. Um, there was recently a blog that I like to um, read a lot. Um, it's actually the Clouded Titles blog by um, Dave Crager. And in this, he writes an opinion piece, and I'd like to express it for those of you that um, either are not aware that it exists, or maybe you've heard it, but maybe by me re-speaking it, you might gain some new understanding. So. Um, Maine becomes the latest state to crack down on MERS practices. Goes on to say, the opinions expressed in this piece are those of the author and do not constitute legal advice. If you need further clarification of any topic matter discussed here, please consult with an attorney competent to render an opinion in these matters. The Maine legislature overrode Republican Governor Paul LePage's veto of a new foreclosure legislation that protects consumers from the apparent vague and ambiguous language within Maine mortgages that got property owners into trouble. The matter in this instance all stems from a July 2014 Maine Supreme Court decision in Bank of America versus Greenleaf Maine Superior Court, July 3rd, 2014, which if you are interested, you can read by clicking on the link. And you can find this on cloudedtitlesblog.com. Contrary to what MERS mouthpieces would have the public and legal community think about the outcome of this case and ensuing legislation, the Maine Supreme Court ultimately decided that MERS can only grant its nominee status and that is even limited at best. It cannot assign mortgages in Maine, nor can it assign notes tied to those mortgages. Maine is the only state thus so far that has succinctly addressed assignments, per se, MERS ability through the servicers or some other document manufacturer's employees to transfer the loans out of a defunct entity into a trust, a remix, that for all intents and purposes cannot accept the note and the mortgage. Remember, assignments are not self-authenticating. Depending on the state you are in, the laws for approaching assignments are very different than Maine's newest legislation, which attorney Tom Cox, who defeated or I'm sorry, defended Scott Greenleaf in the foregoing action. Says, he says that it validates all pre-Greenleaf 
pre-legislative Murray documents that we recorded in the land records all over the state. The title insurance or title in industries are effectively owned by the banking industry, says Cox in a telephone interview to me this morning. Twenty years ago, they said that they'd never allow that to happen. Cox also stated that he was saddened that the foreclosure defense attorneys did not do more to fight for their clients when MERS was involved. The new legislation effectively puts a lid on the MERS activity. Despite what MERS PR machine keeps sweeping or spewing out the last fall, because of Greenleaf's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac told the receptive foreclosure law firms to foreclose in Fannie and Freddie's names rather than MERS or another entity. The new legislation also effectively forces banks to have to try to contact the originating lenders to sign off on assignments and virtually reconstruct the entire chain of title and custody of the note in order to foreclose on main properties. Cox says Greenleaf's decision was handed down. Foreclosing filings in Maine have dropped 65%. The Greenleaf decision, coupled with the new legislation, is retroactive on MERS-related documents, however. Oh, isn't, I'm sorry, isn't retroactive. Cox says, for all intents and purposes, these actions effectively eliminate the needs for MERS and mortgages in Maine. The banks and title companies and real estate firms all complained to the legislature about the new bill, which effectively makes banks prove up everything. Of course, none of those entities appeared to give a rat's something about the condition of the title as long as the title companies can write around the defects by excluding them from coverage. I'm starting to really wonder about the effectiveness of the title insurance benefiting the homeowners at closing. These policies just seem to benefit the lenders. The new caveat emptor is going to be the indemnification agreement they're going to make you sign when you buy a real estate-owned property or even in a short sale. They'll figure out a way to write around those defects too. Cox thinks that the banks will try to push some sort of legislation forward in the next session it gives them all the go paths to quiet time to property. This is like an Ibanez redo. If you're selling, if you are a selling homeowner, you would be best aware of a potential future litigation wherein you issue a warranty deed. That document, you warrant to defend title, which increases the risk you will be named in a lawsuit if the new buyer of your property finds out that you sold him did not convey the right to quiet enjoyment. This covenant of season. Perhaps you should really study season carefully. The MERS business model does not appear to cater to season. It caters to the MERS Corp bottom line. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of properties in Maine are likely to have serious title issues. Best to avoid moving there. Anyone looking to purchase property will probably have to start with a track of land, make sure the title is clear, and build on it for cash. Say no to MERS mortgages. Who says you have to stay in at the closing table if you see a MIN number on your paperwork? Use portfolio lenders. Double check and make sure they're holding and servicing what they sell. Get it in writing. Encourage portfolio lending. Shame the banks that still think that they can use the MERS system. Wake up them. Stand your ground. Don't borrow it unless you have to. Pay cash when at all possible. Build from scratch on the clear title land. Um, screw this current banking system. Look at the Bank of North Dakota if you want a prime example of successful run banks. So I read that tonight for the purpose of giving you an insight of what can be accomplished and yet what may be taken away by the next legislative move. 
Um, so one must be always careful and vigilant from my perspective. Um, one should be always working with your legislatures. Um, even if you don't think it's helping or working or anything else, keep on it. Keep, keep asking them questions. Keep directing what your concerns are okay, to them. So um, with that being said, uh, I'd like to open up the call. Any questions, concerns, comments? Anybody have any um, processes that they may want some, some uh, a different perspective, not an attorney and a, or an accounting perspective, but just a perspective of some, somebody else's opportunity to look at look with fresh eyes. Are we on a call? Nancy, what about what about you said that the um, the um, if they whatever the state or whatever if they come up with some litigation or something like that that, that could help help um, MERS in doing whatever they're doing right or help the banks then still do we still have a defense in order to you know to under quiet title and all that in order to do that and my answer is yes but I just want to hear your little insight on that too so. Well, I, my personal opinion at this moment is this helps out people that want to move forward in this moment um, before the new legislation may kick in or may take effect. Um, do I think that the voters... <laughs> this is an interesting question because I believe the voters could have a, a, a way to make it happen you know, to, to um, overcome the issue of the bank getting in new legislation, but it's going to take some serious effort. I mean, it's going to take at least 10% of the population in that state to really challenge and really, you know, stand up and ask questions and, um, you know, be honest with their legislatures rather than just letting the legislatures run amok. I, I, don't, I don't think that any of us can honestly say that we've been involved um, with our legislatures, okay? Um, mm -hmm. I do know my legislature personally. I do run into him probably three, four times a year, um, which is way more than most, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. um, but we're not always talking about legislative business. Sometimes we're talking about, you know, private, you know, <laughs> things that have nothing to do with that. But yet by the same token is, are people really taking an interest, not just in themselves, but in their fellow neighbors? And I think they should be taking their interest in their fellow neighbors because it definitely affects their property values as well. And some people, you know, uh, fail to look at that as a, as, as a, um, <laughs> that they fail to realize that the person that's losing their house in their neighborhood is going to affect their own personal property values, no matter whether the property is taken over by, back by the bank, whether it's done in a short sale, whether it's um, given back to the bank. Because those are, from my perspective, the three ways that, you know, someone either loses or gives back their piece of property. Well, also the money that's lost in the coppers in the county and the chance of having a slander title, I don't think the county is going to be too happy about that, even if they do make some kind of litigation, because somebody always could come out of the woodwork and say, hey, i got a claim here. So they, I would think that before 1996, that there was probably not that many quiet title actions were going on because the properties were, I mean, who's that people say they were, you know? And now it's um, becoming more common. So, well, um, I would also assert that you have states that have permissive filings and pay, uh, states that have mandatory filings. Those that have mandatory, there's no question whether something is there or not, meaning meaning prior to 1995 when MERS was, came into existence. Okay? After 1995, MERS didn't care. They basically didn't give a shit and they went and did what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it because they had their own database of systems that they were going to count on 
getting through whatever they needed to get through in order to make it happen. So um, I live in a permissive state. Um, So, you know, uh, someone could come out of the woodwork and say, oh, by the way, I got some document over here. Now, does that mean that that document is authenticated or can be authenticated? That's a whole other story. That's Mm -hmm. a whole other issue and problem. But the fact that they can come in and say that they have a claim is something. And that's another thing is from my perspective is that we all take um, too much for granted what's really in front of us that it is valid and has some authority. I'll give you an example that um, I personally did. Um, I wrote a letter to a company that I knew was not at that address, okay? Because mm-hmm. I, I did my research. I've, you know, used that address for other, another company and all that kind of stuff, okay? So I personally sent a um, certified mail restricted delivery to a particular person at that address, okay? Now, yeah. the post office showed it picked up and signed. And when I got the green card back, it had a stamp of the name of a different business, which was, guess what? The business I thought was there. So to me, it confirmed that that is the business that's at that location. And the business that this other company was telling me was at that address is not at that address. So I took this green card into my postal office, and I said, I'd like some information about this green card. I said, I requested a restrictive delivery, and according to this address label here, where it's addressed to, does not reflect where it's addressed up on the top. I said, the signer of this is a stamp, and it's not the same company. Now, and what did you say? Well, the, the postal clerk kind of went, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to call back because it was in New York. So I think I'm going to call back to New York and have, have to have a discussion with their postal, um, com- you know, the postal people back there and find out what, what this is about because this just looks really weird. This, that, that just couldn't have happened. Yeah. And, but you hear what I'm saying. I could have just allowed it to go. Now, I do intend to file a action against with the postal if they if they cannot come back with some, you know, uh, something that would prove that in fact that company is at that location, then I do intend to file a complaint with my postal um, you know, the postmaster. Because that okay. is the way to stop this stuff of not letting things go through when they're really not there. Does that come well, there? Uh, okay, but you're giving them a chance, though. So you're giving the Postal Service a chance to um, you know, come back with some, whatever their reply is going to be. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, this just recently happened. So, yeah. Yeah, but I'm giving them an opportunity because it's only right to give people an opportunity. I mean, it's not, it's not I, even though I know or I believe to know, or I have my assertions and assumptions and all the rest of those things in my little backpack kind of thing. Yeah, I'm going, okay, I know that company's not there because I've written this other company there, and I've written them several letters, so I can't imagine that they just moved in because we're talking about one big bank, and it takes up all 50 floors of this building. That's mm-hmm. all that's there. Um, so, Yeah. So, but I am giving them an opportunity because that's the right thing to do from my perspective. Now, what if we find? What if you find out that the bank doesn't really exist there? Someone else just signed for it, you know, and there, you know, because we know that the bank is not the right person that was supposed to be. So, now what do well, you do? From my perspective, that's where I file a uh, complaint or a um, cause of action with the postmaster. And I request that it be investigated. 
on a on a on a personal level because someone, from my perspective, has intercepted my mail. I believe there is a code in the uh, United States code for persons that intercept mail. Well, it'll be mail fraud or something like that. I'm sure something in I'm that code. Sure, it might be something along those lines, but. Then the question is whether they did it intentionally or by neglect. Well, let's say that there is no bank that's in that address that says it's, let's say it's Bank A, and there's a Bank B that's sitting in New York. Well, there is and they bank. signed it. Okay, and they signed for it, and yep. that's so the only address in your son. They have now committed mail fraud from my perspective, but that's just my perspective. I want the Postal Service to determine that that was mail fraud. Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't want to make that determination because that's not my determination to make. I think you're on the right track there. Right. Oh, no. yeah. So, but that's why I'm talking about letting these things, um, you know, letting them just stand as the way they are. It's our right and responsibility to. Stand up and say something, even like calling your um, congressman, calling him, telling him you don't like the way the banks are running, you don't like the way MERS is running, you don't like the way the title companies are running. I mean, whatever your thing is, make sure you have your information so you can concisely and completely tell them what it is that you're talking about, because sometimes they know and sometimes they don't know. Sometimes the people that answer the phone are just the interns. Most of the time they are, actually. <laughs> Don't know that you'd ever really get your, you know, legislator on the phone unless, unless you <laughs> knew his number or something like that, like I do. But, um, you know. But a lot of people don't know about MERS. They think it's, uh, you know, I got out my county auditor recorder's office, and if you say the word MERS, well, it's a big company. They could do, you know, they wouldn't do nothing wrong, you know. And then the mindset is that they really believe that is really a legit company that's really, you know, above board. And, and in fact, you're finding out that they're, they're not, you know. But so but you've got to change the – and this should be sort of the first line of defense is there that look, they're the ones that are recording this stuff. And, they, you know, maybe they all, they shouldn't be practicing law of license, I guess, in a sense. But, you know, they should be looking at the documents, you know. They look at our documents when we file something and, well, we don't like how you cross your T's and dot your I's, so we're not going to file that document. So why not to do that with them too? So I mean, I would think that would be, you know, we need to educate them and what's going on. So. Well, and that would be if if they need education, then I would certainly educate them. And I believe that there are enough court cases that have occurred currently um, that any one of those five or ten very large cases that have occurred for MERS. Um, hmm would be able to be presented to your um, congressman that, you know, this this is what we're talking about and we I don't want this happening in my state. Um, well, well I mean, I'm going to give you, for instance, I was in the county recorder's office the other day and I was just filing a simple UCC, nothing hard about it, and the UCC was... And she said, I'm not filing the document because you're not a corporation. And only a corporation can file a UCC. That's what she said to me. So I came back with the UCC book that what is a person? A person is a corporation. She had no clue about that. I still got it filed, but it still was, they didn't know. They thought a person is a person and a corporation is a corporation and there's no difference. And um, you, know, that, you could just see how they just don't know. And she's saying, she told me, she said, look, I'm just a, one of the wheels of the claw, uh, clogs on the wheel. That's all I am. She didn't know. So, you know. And, but that's also, that is a very good point because that is what she is. She, it's yes. not her job. As a matter of fact, if you find an error in the county recorder's land records, <laughs> it's not the recorder's job to do anything about it because they only are supposed to it if it, if it fits the correct form. If it, it the substance of it behind it is not for them to determine. Mm-hmm. They they don't go back and look up and go, oh okay, I see you got this from Bank C and now you're Bank D and you want to file this. Okay, cool. 
They don't do that. If you put it in the proper form, they file it. Now, there are, could potentially be penalties for filing improper documents at the county records office. I believe that's a, a pretty hefty violation there. But, uh, you know, that's, that's assuming that your district attorney in your county is going to be on top of things and be aware that that's what's occurring. So, mm-hmm. And most of them are so overwhelmed and over busy with all the criminal stuff that, uh, you know, although that is a criminal offense from my perspective, they they may or may not want to take their time because they don't think there's really any, any uh, you might want to call it any juice in it, <laughs> you know, for them. Maybe, maybe. So, okay. So Do we have any other know? questions? Yeah, any other questions on the call? Any Anything else going on with anybody? This is not a time to be shy. Hi. Um, when when a UCC is filed, and I, very specifically, I was an investor in a land trust, and so I filed a UCC to secure my investment in, in the property that was in the land trust. It, when the property comes up for sale, is that something that I have to keep track of, or does the quote-unquote title company, do they pull any UCC filings to make sure people are, in fact, paid back? I would assert that you have a responsibility for getting that UCC filing over to the county records if, in fact, it has anything to do with land. Okay. Just just because one files a UCC um, filing, there is no responsibility, to my knowledge, um, of anyone that's supposed to go and check those records out. Now, if you want it to sit in the land records, um, you can certainly take the UCC filing over and um, file it with your county uh, recorder. Now, you want to make sure that you're filing proper form and with substance behind it, because if you're not, then you're doing the same thing as all the rest of the servicing companies and banks and everything else. So you want to make sure that you're doing it within the letter of the law, if that makes okay. sense. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Meaning, meaning you've, gained your, you've gained all of your um, um, substantive relief prior to filing the UCC, and you've done all the paperwork and proper, you know, things necessary up to that point, and then when you turn it over to the land records, then it shows that you've done all the work. Okay. That makes sense. Thank, thank you. You're welcome. Anything else? Uh. Yes, I had a question. If you uh, if you file quiet title and you only list the original loan originator and the last in line, and you send everybody else in between in the chain there a notice of claim or release of interest letter, and you do not get a response, what is a reasonable amount of time, or how do you proceed forward at that point? Well, I might give it. Um, if you filed, or I'm sorry, mailed a release of lien or um, a notice of claim letter off to a company that's somewhere in the middle that you can't find a, a connection to whomever they are, um, you know, from my perspective, I would give them at least a 30-day window, um, unless you're asking them to verify a debt, which title has nothing to do with debt, so therefore. Um, that's why I would give them a 30-day window. And I may even give them another 14-day window after that um, as an opportunity to, uh, you know, hey, I realize you may have overlooked this, but um, this is really important and I, um, you know, you may be losing your um, rights to property if you do not respond, okay? And and then I might actually send them another third response, which is, you know, um, okay, I've given you two responses. 
I haven't heard anything from you. I'm going to assert that in um, after after upon receiving this third letter, five days later, I would would assert that if I receive nothing, that you are in agreement with everything that I've said. So basically, you're giving you know, no no uh, a letter of no recourse. I don't know what, that I would call it a no letter of no recourse, but I would certainly say that they're in agreement that they have no interest. Okay. Okay. And 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 knowing that I had given them an opportunity to respond, meaning I had connected with them through, um, and so I'm asserting that since you're talking about really an interest in things you're talking about banks and or or servicers or you know maybe even the title company I don't know um, but meaning the contact person that you're dealing with initially is through their registered agent correct okay because the registered agent is the person that's responsible for receiving that kind of information the customer service department doesn't know, doesn't care, and you know, and you might you might be damaging yourself and them all at the same time if by doing that kind of a thing. Okay, okay. But but going to the direct party that's responsible, you know, I know that there was a time when um, people were talking about going to the president and having the president sign off on it, you know, or the tra or. Uh, Portland, or um, sorry, president, or the treasurer, or the you know th that those people up at the top, the vice president of treasury, whatever. Um, I, I don't know that that's appropriate, only because they they still may not be the right party. The president of the bank doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, he's responsible for a whole lot, but you know. He reads a lot of papers, goes to a lot of meetings, has a lot of people do his work for him. You know, he's he's. I don't know that his responsibility is to fill out one of those pieces of paper. Okay. So, so the chance that if you wrote the president and expected a response from him, you might not get a response from him. And therefore, even with that, if you got a response and it wasn't from him, how do you know that the president's the one that gave him the authority to do that? That's when knowing the parties of interest or knowing who you're dealing with comes into play from my perspective. Can I offer an alternative on that? You certainly can. Subject matter of a release of lien. If a party is sending off a document which is asking them in so many words, are you releasing or do you are you claiming that you have any interest in a specific property, a subject property? Normally, if a party does not have interest, they would fill out the form and they would return it. Why? Because they don't want to face the possibility of litigation. For those that do not respond, then that would be claimed as a potential claimant against the property. So if a party was considering a quiet title action at that point in time because they had been contacted for a release and they failed to respond, the consideration at that point in time is that they would be named as an adverse party within the claim. So are you saying you would send in an addendum to your quiet title listing them since they were not listed on the original quiet title that was filed? Okay. Uh, I'm not an attorney, and I can't provide legal or financial advice. However, right. say, uh, if I were filling out a quiet title action um, and I was lining up my defendants, I would, of course, go after the parties in which are called no, those from those which are obvious in the first place. So however I... However, I proceeded in the first, you know, first instance, meaning if I had XYZ and ABC listed as defendants, as example. Under the, and now underneath that, I should have also included John Doe's 1 through 20 or maybe 1 through 100 as unknown parties. 
that would be one thing as far as being under my defendants. Now, whenever there would be another person that enters into the field by name or by title, then I seek to amend, I, I file for leave in order to amend my complaint, and then I add to it. Now, within my quiet title action, I would have, on my original filing, I would have words to those effect that any time that there become a known party, that I, I shall amend my complaint for them to be included. So then my, if I, for example, if I had John Doe's 1 through 100, then it would now be John Doe's 1 through 99, and I would enter that new party in as the defendant. Okay, that's exa exactly what we did. Okay. Now, in the alternative, as what Nancy was suggesting, is that if a party was setting up for a second witness as to claim this party, you know, like we send out um, a release letter and the parties did not respond, is it possible that it was overlooked? Is it possible that it may have been dropped in the mail or something like that? Sure, of course it is. Or it's, it's a, po a possibility, if you understand what I'm referring to. Yes. If we were to send out another form of letter to them, you know, as saying an updated uh, request, uh, you know, just in the event that it was an oversight or whatever, otherwise they're going to be named as a party of interest. At that point in time, uh, now subject to the chain of title, if, um, if they were, I guess it depends on which way you're looking down the chain, but let's just say that they were closer to the beginning than it was to the end, and they did not release, then that causes an issue, especially if you have a party that is towards the end of the chain that is making an assertion that, um, that under when the challenge is going to be that the parties are going to seek to have a motion to dismiss and they're going to bring forward a request for judicial notice. Now, now, if you have persons that are further towards the beginning of that chain that is maintaining interest, or at least they didn't release their interest, then that alone um, would help to support one's claim as there is contest, there is genuine dispute that is current. So while they may go ahead and take recognition of the judicial notice as to claim that that party has interest, they can't dismiss the claim. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely, right. And when they would, they're both basically uh, taking claim to the same uh, loan. Yes, exactly. If we were looking at a scale as an example and just say that the scale went from 1 to 10, you know, as say parties of interest, and we had somebody, and when we say 10, that's the person who's acting in the capacity of a server, sir, or claiming that they're last in line, they're a holder or something like that, and they're suggestively a known party. That will be the party that will step forward and they don't want to enter in uh, as a defendant. Not, not at first they won't. They'll seek to have the quiet title action uh, dismissed. And by doing so, they will seek to have um, a request for judicial notice recognized. Now, for those that are on top of the understanding the system itself, they will recognize that there isn't any judicial notices that actually rise to the point to where it can have a quiet title action dismissed other than the plaintiff, which is generally the homeowner, they normally trip, um, you know, meaning that they, they fail to assert the only reason that a quiet title action can be dismissed is based upon the subject matter that the filing itself did not meet the sufficiency 
for the filing within that state. Does that make sense? They, yes. So in other words, if you don't do your paperwork right at the beginning, they can find a way to dismiss it. Yes. In so many words, that's exactly right. If one does not file properly right from the jump and they identify with a defect within the quiet title action as far as the state has uh, rules, the statutory rules that right. in equity, that says certain things must be met now within the filing. If right. the defect in that original in that original filing and the opponent recognizes that defect, then they can have the case dismissed. Otherwise, what they seek to do is use colorful expressions in law by waving around judicial notices. If you're following what I'm saying, you know, they're oh this yeah. There's no way that the plaintiff is going to win this case, you know, type deal. Well, the thing is, is that the hearing, they're not a defendant at that time. All they're doing is making claims that the, that the um, plaintiff isn't going to win the case, so all it is is a waste of the court's time. Or they'll make some other, we'll say, unfounded allegations regarding maybe a person's character or something or another, saying that they're just a deadbeat debtor or seeking to get their house for free or uh, trying to prevent a foreclosure or something like that, okay? Whatever it is. Right. The idea is the, the motion to dismiss in regards to a quiet title action is actually specific. And that means does the complaint meet the filing requirements of the state. Thereby, the only challenges in which can be presented during a pre-hearing is whether or not that filing meets the sufficiency requirements for the filings in that state. Okay. Okay. Now, during the course of this, now I should state in this context, for any party that is seeking to move forward within a quiet title action, expect the attack. That is that is just a common tactic. It is they will come out with requests for judicial notices and a motion to dismiss. If they're out in California, it's a it's a motion to uh, a demur. Right. But the right. object is it's just a motion to dismiss, and they use smoke and mirrors, they flap paper around, and then they'll make claims regarding payment. That's usually always one of the big, one of the big nuts that they throw out there, that the plaintiff is behind in payments. Um, and now keep in mind, equity has nothing to do about money. It deals with rights. Now, the bench and... The, well, we'll just say the respondent at this point, the, the other table, they will seek to get an admission from the plaintiff. And they will say things such as, well, Mr. So-and-so, are you behind in your payments or are you current in all your payments or something along those lines? And that they, has nothing to do with the issue, though. That's exactly right that that right there is not the fabric of the law or the fabric of the suit, if you're following what I'm saying. It, it has yeah. no bearing on the question in law whether or not my, the respondent here is, in fact, the person entitled to enforce an instrument in the first place. That is yet to be proven. And if he wants to prove that fact, he, there is currently no defendant that has responded to my complaint. So if he wants to bring evidences forward, have him answer the complaint. That okay. steps into the arena as a defendant. Then you can question his evidences because you're not at a trial. You can't question the evidences during a hearing. Correct. Does, does that make sense? Makes total sense. The subject matter, because if that was it, it would just be a one-sided evidentiary process. In other words, the respondent is flapping papers around, and they're saying, take notice of this, take notice of this. And within that context, you never had an opportunity to depose or to use the discovery. And so, and now if 
the plaintiff isn't aware of the rules, they'll let that slide, and they'll end up having their case dismissed. Or, in the alternative, the judge will take and turn his hat around, and he will take the suit from equity, and he'll bring it in law. No, yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, right. you don't want that. Because you have to, one would have to stand their ground, understanding the rules of procedures, and uh, kind of brush up on the, the subject matter of, of um, motions to dismiss, how to defeat those through the objections, and recognize, again, the subject matter specifically is whether or not the complaint meets the filing requirements of the state, thereby the sufficiency of the filing requirements for the state. That is the hinge pin. And if it were me, I would seek everything within my capacity not to step beyond that boundary. Because once we start talking, and that's where we sink our own ship, if you're following what I'm saying, brother. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay, so basically you want you want to keep them on point to what you're – to what you're asking them and not let them drift away and turn it around on you. Exactly. That That's exactly right. So if they bring up the subject matter of being behind in payments, trying to get a house free and clear, trying to stop a foreclosure proceeding, all that stuff is immaterial and irrelevant to the subject matter and the question before the court. The question before the court is currently, is the complaint meet the sufficiency requirements for the filing of the state? Perfect. That's the nut. Got totally now, understand it. That, that's only just for the filing itself. Now, of course, record right. that thereafter, that's when, you know, we'll say, um, that's when the music really begins to, begins to play and you have to dance at that point, right? You know, I mean, then that's, if, they, if the person does enter into the field, meaning somebody does respond, uh, because they will respond if... Um, no, I, I won't say 100% of the time. The vast majority of the time, if the motion to dismiss gets defeated, rest assured somebody's going to respond. So at that time, the plaintiff is going to have to be prepared to uh, engage in discovery at that point. Uh, that's, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. So I have to be okay. prepared to move forward with the trial. Okay, and basically that's where your chain of title will come in and ask them to produce documentation to prove that there was a debt incurred and it was, tra and it was uh, passed from one party to another? Uh, subjectively, again, if, if you're talking about a chain of title assessment as to identify where the various conveyances may have been or where there may have been breaches thereby, uh, yes. one has to lead into that. So uh, subject to who... Uh, the opponent at that time, the subject matter is, is um, take this in a subjective sense. Where did okay. you, where did you get the documentation to support your claim? Right. Okay. That that's where that begins. If you're following what I'm saying. Yes. Because they have to, they have to, are you familiar with um, the UCC 3-301, have you, have you attended any of the weekend workshops that have been offered? No, I'm, I'm uh, very new to this. Uh, last, last Saturday was my first call that I was on, and I, it was an excellent call on Saturday. And I've been dealing with this for a little while, but no, I'm not that in-depth with it. But I understand the part that I'm up on, I do understand pretty well, but what you're getting into now, I do not have the knowledge for. Okay. If you're, if are you up again? Are are your feet to the fire? Uh, not totally yet, but they're getting close. Getting close. Okay. So in other words, what I'm hearing you say is, um, you got to get in gear. That's yes. Um. The subject matter is is that a quiet title action, no different than a complaint or answering to a complaint. The issue is is the first volley of paper is really not all that difficult to handle. It's what comes after that because that's when the music starts playing and you got to dance and you have to play by the rules at that point in time. And that's experience, right. 
Yeah, and this is one of the reasons, like, uh, respectfully, this is one of the reasons why a person who uh, is an experienced litigator has an advantage over those that have never been inside of a courtroom before because they can use, they understand the nature of the system and they can, uh, they can dance around with inside there. It doesn't matter how you change the music. They can, you know, quickly dance uh, to it, change your dance steps. Right, yeah, you're, you're in their arena. You're in yeah. their ballgame. Yeah, right. it's their field, you know. I'm sure that you recognize what I'm saying. It's some. It's a place in which they're comfortable with. It's That's their dealing. They've been trained in that. Uh, most, right. say, litigants that are trying to pull, uh, pull this off, yeah, they, they have a, a, a heck of a learning curve. But the object is, is that they have to, if they uh, can associate with the rules of evidences and the rules of procedure, keep the opponent... Um, focused, and, you know, just in other words, keep bringing things back to point. Don't let them slide out. Uh, assure that um, if there is specific documentation in which is to be provided and they haven't done it, then the motion's to compel. Um, otherwise, if, if they have been making statements or allegations, then there's motions to strike you know, to have that stuff removed from the records, because they'll call that stuff up if it's not removed, if you know what I'm referring to. Yes, exactly. So, so the, I mean, there, there's actual, you know, Perry Mason stuff that's going on here. You know, I don't know if you're a fan of Perry Mason or not, but... Well, I'm, I'm old enough to be, yes. Okay, well, within that context, the idea is, is that it becomes an actual, you know, uh, case, and there's there's rules. And if you break the rules, that's that's generally speaking, it doesn't matter whether our cases are just and righteous. The idea is, is that if we breach the rules or we don't follow through with the rules or we let, um, we let them off the hook, so to speak, that's usually the point to where it comes back to bite us in the butt. Okay. So we want to make sure that we stay, you know, really tight with the rules and uh, just being offered for the suggestion for all parties that are on the call that if they're going to move forward, if they're going to operate within a pro se capacity, uh, I'm just offering this for the consideration, that after they have their format set up, I suggest taking advantage of perhaps contacting a few attorneys. Um, you may want to do a little fast background to make sure that they're not working with the network for the bankers or lenders uh, because they don't have to disclose that to you. They don't consider it a conflict of interest to be an attorney for a, a mortgage finance industry or something like that. Um, do a fast background on them, make sure that they're not, you know, we'll, we'll say the opponent in disguise, and go and speak with them uh, and see, because when in, what I mean is many of them offer like a, an hour or so of uh, free consultation. Okay. And, and it may be worth, you know, the value. Or another thing to do is one can check with their local um, local legal aid to see if there are any paralegals available. A lot of paralegals, um, they offer um, pro bono time. And within that case, that means that you can approach um, the um, a paralegal uh, through the legal aid and they may be able to support in whether or not there has been proper documentation, you know, the order, of, uh, or whether or not there should be certain papers filed or whatever. In other words, they can help you set the stage, and it's okay. perfectly legal for them to do so. Okay. But uh, re reality is what you're saying is if it gets into a trial case or a court case, you're better off hiring an attorney that's a professional litigator that's good in that arena to present your case. I, if it would be of my assessment, I would say one has that is actually for the homeowner. Uh, I mean, we have to stipulate to that effect, brother. Yes, right. There are there are again there are attorneys that are even though they will sell their services as a homeowner defense attorney or foreclosure attorney. Um, they tend to, let's say, they put on a good show, and they <laughs> seem to benefit the homeowner when it's all when it's all said and done. If you know what I'm saying, I'm not going to say they're corrupt or you know, or I'm just going to say that they don't seem to win too much on the homeowner side. So, gotcha. so we want to make sure that we do get a hold of a homeowner um, 
a homeowner defense attorney that actually does care about the homeowner. Right. Okay. Okay. That's a job in itself. Okay. It, yeah, it takes some interviewing. Have you ever had the opportunity to read uh, Clouded Titles by Dave Kreger? Uh, no, I not not his, no. Okay. Uh, it just being too suggestion, brother, um, and I don't know, again, how long you have to, to get in gear, but I would suggest two publications off the top of my head. And the, okay. the first one, if you have a pen in hand or you got yourself a good memory, I would say Clouded Titles by Dave Kreger. Okay. Now, he's the guy who, who coined the phrase CODA, Chain of Title Assessment, and he has been training people to be CODA preparers, you know, people who actually investigate assignments and they provide interdepartment legal memos, you know, to attorneys and whatnot. They're, they're beneficial uh, even to the homeowner as to, so that they can also recognize where there may be breaches within their chain of title. It is not a legal document that can be filed, you know, as a court proceeding or anything, but it's, it's like a roadmap. They can begin to identify where there's defects and they can plan things out for their attack. The other publication in which I would consider would be Fighting the Foreclosure Machine by Robert James, J-A-N-E-S. Robert James, okay. And those two right there, that's, that um, if you invest the time into it, I would say that those two publications have the potential of saving one's bacon. Uh, so it'll be researched immediately. Okay. My best to you, brother. Well, I got nowhere to go but up. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. Anything else for tonight? I I I, I think we got plenty. <laughs> got, got plenty of stuff to learn and study and all the rest of those things. Absolutely. Thank you. I'll just I'll just make this last comment because it came up to not bite me in the fanny, but I actually caught myself before I um, <laughs> before I flipped the page. Um, I have a very dear friend that always talks about identification of parties. And I received a letter last week that on the outside looked to be from a particular company. Um, and when I opened up the envelope, it looked to be from a particular company. And the particular companies looked to be the same. Yet what I noticed was, and, and had I not had this powerful training, and understanding, I would have dismissed it. But in fact, I noticed that the person's name on the outside was not the person's name on the inside. So in crafting and drafting and, you know, preparing a response, I sent communications to both parties because I am not sure which one intended to make a communication with me. I don't know if the right letter was in the right envelope or not. So I bring that forward just so that people can start to pay attention more, be more aware what looks real more than likely is not real, <laughs> and um, you know, question everything. Don't just make assumptions that just because it looks like it's from the same people, it may or may not be and just kind of like the like the uh, postal service uh, you know experience <laughs> but but I already knew that see I I, w I was doing it to confirm what I knew <laughs> okay and and so even at that point even confirming what I know it, there's a step in a process for that as well to make sure that I don't just go way out on a limb and make all kinds of assumptions so I'm asking you to not make any assumptions either, but to really pay attention and look at for the look for the details all the time. We will do that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Well, we will close with that and 
Everyone have a good week and um, be good to yourselves and to others. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, you, everybody. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.